Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Now, as you can tell, um, Advent and Christmas are upon us. Now, I really value this time of year, not because, uh, not just because, rather, all the goodwill and festivities, um, nice though those are, especially now that I'm a father, uh, putting up the Christmas tree has never been so fun. Um, but because this time of year, um, to me, seems like the one time of year where we can be real, Advent strikes me um, as very near the heart of reality, um, the heart of w- the way things are in the world. Because in this time, in Advent, um, opposites meet, um, despair meets hope, darkness meets light, exile, being banished from the garden meets return. And what Advent does in, those, in that combination is that it acquaints us with, on the one hand, the terrible truth of our world, but on the other, the even greater promise of salvation. And then for that reason, it gives us permission to stop pretending like everything is okay. In fact, the season of Advent encourages us to face that reality, the brokenness of our world and our own lives head on. We are in desperate need of salvation, and therefore we pray, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Now, Advent is also about waiting, and that too, to me, seems very near the heart of things. We are saved, yes, but we're also being saved. The whole endeavor of salvation seems to move forward very slowly in this life. Sometimes we would think, if at all. Things just inch forward in our lives, and it seems it's not going anywhere. We partake of the glimpses now and of shadows now, but the real substance of our salvation is laid up for us in heaven, being kept by God. And so this powerful combination of opposites serves to stir up one emotion more than the rest during this time of year, and that's longing, a glorious heaviness rests upon our hearts during this season. The burden of death and sin, but the still greater burden of glory and life immortal. Those two meet and they come together and they stir up that longing in our heart. Right, And as we face the darkness, if we, as we look at the way things truly are in this world and in our lives, it teaches us to yearn for the light all the more, to long for the coming of the kingdom of God with all our hearts. And so, in this season, we're reminded that there's something more. And what we do, um, and we'll, we'll come back to this theme later in the sermon, what we do, what this teaches us to do is to groan or to long. Romans chapter 8 is, is where we'll be. It teaches us to sigh. But in the meantime, before we get there, I want to introduce um, our series for um, leading up to Christmas. And it comes from those very first pages of the Bible, I'll read verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Now central to the biblical storyline are these words. A war between the serpent and the woman and their respective offspring. And also... A cryptic promise of victory. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on 
the heel. Now, the meaning of these uh, shadowy words will become clear in time, but for now it's sufficient to note that they are messianic, as you know, and that they form the basic plot line of the scriptural story. And so what we're going to do leading up to Christmas is trace this promise of the coming seed throughout the early chapters of Genesis, from our passage this morning with Adam and Eve and the serpent, to the next story of Cain and Abel, then to Noah and the flood, finally culminating in Abraham and the birth of his son Isaac, all the while demonstrating how these stories prefigure and point to Jesus every step of the way, the one, the seed who comes to crush the serpent's head. So let's begin then by setting the stage for this Prophecy. And a note of confession, this sermon was like getting way too long, so I cut out a chunk of Genesis 1 through 2, um, the setup leading up to this. You guys know the story, so we can just hop right in. Now, all is well in the creation story, the making of humanity, um, the institution of Sabbath rest, the planting of the Garden of Eden, and then the placing of the man and the woman inside the garden. All is well until... The serpent unexpectedly appears on the scene. He was, verse 1, more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, he's an ambiguous character from the start. Craftiness has both positive and negative undertones. Now, and his identity is also ambiguous. The passage provides no explanation for the serpent. Is he merely a creature? A talking one, albeit, or is he something more sinister? At this point, we're given no real insight about his identity. The serpent is just there, assumed in the story. And ambiguous though he is, the serpent does not stay that way for long. The first words from his mouth are treacherous indeed. Has God said, he asks the woman. He claims the serpent does to possess a secret knowledge, a true understanding of God's intentions. And what he means to say and tell the woman is that God is holding back on her and her husband. The tree of knowledge that God promised in the day that you eat it would bring death, he says, will not bring death. Surely you will not die, but it's going to bring enlightenment. In partaking of the fruit of that tree, You will become like gods yourselves. You will know good and evil. So he deceives the woman into thinking that God is somehow holding out on her. Thus, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is, the lust of the flesh, 1 John 2, that it was a delight to the eyes, that is, the lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life, she took verse 6 and 8. And she gave the fruit to her husband, and likewise he ate. Then the scripture reads, verse 7, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin Coverings. So prior to eating, the man and the woman in the garden were like children. They had no knowledge of good and evil, nor the difference between the two. 
Now, in partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, adulthood has come before its time. Their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are naked. And nakedness stands for more than mere nakedness. It's a symbol, or now it's emblematic, rather, of the human condition. Vulnerable and exposed in a hostile world. Hence, the first couple made fig leaves to cover themselves, to protect themselves from their new situation. Now, nakedness is also symbolic for unity. Literally, nothing between two people. And these fig leaves, or these coverings, they denote a deep fracture in that unity between the man and the woman. Artificial garments now stand between them and interrupt the oneness and the fellowship they once had. And a deeper fracture still is the one introduced between God and humanity, which the scripture narrates in the tragic words of verse 8, the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Their nakedness before God, their open communion with Him in the garden, has given way now to more covering and to more hiding. Conscience is awakened within the man and the woman, driving them into darkness and away from the light of God's presence. Conscience drives us into hiding. It pushes us into the darkness. The voice of God calls us into the open. He speaks to Adam, where are you? Verse 9. And he bids the man to come out of his hiding, out of his self-reproach, and to stand in the truth, in his nakedness before God, and admit his situation. But even the man, in his confession, he tries to remain hidden. He responds, verse 12, it was the woman you gave to be with me. What Adam does in this situation is repeat the lie of the serpent. What did he deceive the woman with? That God was holding out, that God's intentions were bad, that God didn't have your best in mind. And here he says, this happened because you gave me this woman. He's finding fault in God's intention. He's doing what the serpent taught him to do. But the woman, she speaks She passes the blame a little bit, but she speaks more truly. She was deceived. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate, verse 13. She's responsible for her transgression, but she was not deliberate in it as the man was. And that brings us now to the portion of the narrative that concerns us. God will pronounce judgment upon the characters in the story, the man, the woman, and the serpent, in the reverse order that he confronted them, beginning with the serpent. And as God turns to the serpent to address what he's done, there are no further questions to ask. He, God graciously draws Adam out of the darkness, graciously repeats the same act with Eve, but to the serpent there are no questions. God has only words of condemnation for the one who instigated this whole situation. Because you have done this, he says, Verse 14, cursed are you more than every beast of the field. Now remember verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Arum is the word in the Hebrew. Now he is cursed more than any beast of the field. The word is arur in the Hebrew. So the crafty serpent is now the cursed serpent. The arum is the arur. So the judgment 
corresponds to the crime. The serpent's distinction above the other animals is turned into his shame. On your belly you will go, God continues, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. It speaks of impurity and humiliation, eating dust. Now in the law, that is the first five books of the Bible, the Torah as it's called, um, in the, uh, by the Hebrews, the Torah in it, um, an animal that travels on the ground, on its belly, whether it has legs or not, um, as, uh, is unclean. And God's people are not to touch or to uh, eat these kind of animals because they're unclean and they're um, outside of God's purposes. And obviously, um, eating dust <clears throat> also denotes degradation. It's often depicted as the fate of Israel's enemies later on in the Bible. Of the king, the psalmist says, let his enemies lick the dust. So more than humiliation, eating dust also communicates death. Now upon the man, the divine pronouncement in verse 19 is, God says to him, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust, then, is a symbol of corruption and decay. It's a symbol of death. And the serpent is destined to eat dust the remainder of his life. He feeds on death, the serpent does. He who said to the man and the woman, you shall surely not die, has now become the living embodiment of death. Now, there's more um, prophesied against the serpent, namely, his ultimate destruction, but we'll return to that later. What we want to do initially is treat the pronouncement against the man and the woman together. And I say that it's a pronouncement against them because it's not a curse. Interestingly, in the Genesis passage before us, only the serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed. There's never a direct curse that lands upon the man and the woman. Now, they do have a very heavy load to bear, but they are not under the sort of condemnation that the other, the ground and the the serpent are. And so, in the midst of an otherwise very bleak situation, it denotes a measure of hope. It denotes something very positive that God is doing in the midst of all this. And the burden that's being laid upon the man and the woman is in direct relationship to the original creation mandate. So if we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, this is after creating humanity. This is what God says to them, verses 28 and 29. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, I, will gi- I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So Adam, the man, was placed in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, to cultivate it and keep it. He was a farmer, in other words. He was there to till and work the ground. And his commission relates to the second part of the passage we just read. I have given you every plant yielding seed. Now on his own, there's no indication that Adam was insufficient for the task. He could work the ground 
of his own strength, and he also had the strength of the animal kingdom at his disposal. Moreover, before the fall, there was a willingness from the earth. It yielded to the efforts of its master. But there was one task that the man was not sufficient for, and that is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In this regard, Genesis 2.20, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Hence, God puts the man to sleep. He cuts him open and removes a rib from his side and from the rib fashions. It doesn't say fashions, it says built. He built a woman from the rib and created Eve. And her commission relates to the very part of the original creation mandate that Adam could not fulfill. She, her commission relates to filling the earth. So the man is to bring fruit from the ground, and the woman is to bring fruit from the womb. Psalm 128, verse 3, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in your house, the psalmist pronounces blessing upon the reader. So in the biblical imagination, then there's this connection between the womb and the earth, right? They're, they're somewhat parallel to one another. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 15, um, King David says, For you formed me, my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. And then he continues, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Now, if you look from that theme, you'll find it all over uh, the Bible, particularly in the prophets, the connection between the womb and the earth and um, this theme of fruitfulness. That was their calling to bring forth fruit. So the woman's body is um, the earth in miniature, and the earth is, quote-unquote, mother nature. And originally, both were wonderfully fruitful. Neither of them knew the meaning of barrenness. The ground yielded to Adam, and the womb would have yielded to Eve abundantly. But that was before the serpent opened his mouth. The consequence of the man and the woman listening to its voice is that the womb will no longer yield its strength and neither the earth. Look at now verses 16 through 18 of our passage. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So the woman is promised pain in her endeavor, and the man toil in his. She will have pain in childbearing, and he will have toil working the ground. Now in the original, it's the same word. Uh, isabon in the Greek, or in the Hebrew rather, which means anxious toil or hardship. Both the man and the woman share the same fate. They will carry out their respective obligations, but no longer under the pristine conditions of blessing. Daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching right now. <laughs> That's so distracting. <laughs> That's more, worse than a phone. Um, that's also wonderful, my goodness. Um, okay. Beginning again. So, um, Adam and Eve then, and the rest of humanity in them, 
Um, the stubbornness of the womb and the earth will cause them great pain, right? And that's the curse that lands upon the world because of sin. And again, in connection with one another, the earth and the womb um, no longer bring forth only fruit, but thorns and thistles. Now, in the case of man, in the, of, the, of the man's work, that's literal, right? The ground will no longer bring forth simply fruit, good for eating, um, seed, and so forth. Now it's also going to bring forth thorns and thistles for him. And the woman, from her womb, will no longer come good fruit, but also thorns and thistles. Think of the very next story, Cain and Abel. Abel, who is good fruit, and Cain, who is a thorn or a thistle and murders his brother. So in the last blow that falls upon the man and the woman are death and exile. Verse 19, God says to the man, by, sw- by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So humans were created on the borderline of creation between heaven and earth. Neither fully earthly nor fully heavenly, but somewhere in the middle. The man was formed from the dust, his earthly origin, but he also was animated by the, by the very breath of God, his heavenly origin. And we often use the term fall to describe this passage, and here it's most evident. Humans were created to rule and reign above the earth, but through sin they have fallen back to the earth. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And it's a witness then, this statement that God makes to the original, to the loss of our original destiny. Created for glory and honor and immortality, the man and the woman are reduced to dust like the serpent. And then, on top of death comes exile. The couple is banished from the garden. Now, verse 24, So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the man and the woman are banished from their home in God's presence. And in spiritual terms, this speaks to the exile that lies upon the human soul. We have been driven out of God's presence, as it were, the garden, the place of fruitfulness. And the way to the tree of life is no longer open to us. We've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have knowledge of what we've done, our sin and our condition, and we've been barred from the one thing that can mend it. And so if there's ever to be hope for the human race, for the man and the woman exiled from the garden, it must be that the way to the tree of life is opened once again, and this death that has come upon them has to be reversed. It has to be reversed. So this is where um, our theme of Christmas and Advent enters the picture. It sets the stage, the deep background for the need and the promise of Christmas. Presented here in Genesis 1 through 3 is the universal problem of the human race. Sin and death introduced to the world through the cunning of the serpent. So if we are to be rescued and restored to our original blessing, to God's original intention for humanity, the head of the serpent needs to be crushed. God has to deal with what he's done in the garden. And that's what God has promised to do. 
continuing his denunciation against the serpent, carrying on from verse 14, the Lord continues, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, interestingly, the enmity is between the serpent and the woman, and not the serpent as the, and the man, as we might expect. After all, it was the man who was given charge over the garden. And it was the man who later bears responsibility for these actions. Um, sin comes through Adam and not Eve. So why then here, in the central moment, right, the drama of the story, does he drop from the picture? And the answer is simply because he failed. Adam is essentially dead. He is not going to be the source of life. The promise will not come through him. And there is no hope for the human race any longer in Adam. He's, he's, we don't even hear from him again. He's out of the picture um, after this. Instead, the enmity is between the serpent and the woman. And the conflict between the two is a life and death struggle. And it's going to extend far beyond the hedges and walls of the Garden of Eden. It is going to be a battle that will engulf the seed or the descendants of both parties. A life and death struggle. And since there is no hope in the man, redemption must come through the woman. And that's what's prophesied. The woman will give birth to the seed, a seed who will bruise or crush the serpent's head. And so as the serpent was instrumental in bringing down the woman and the human race through her, the woman will ultimately bring down the serpent through her offspring. And so in the midst of just consequences and curses, here is a promise of victory an assurance of hope. In the face of death, God is promising a future for the human race. It's not going to end then and there in the garden. Genesis 2.17, In that day you eat from it, you will surely die. God says it's not going to end then and there. Death will come, but it will be staved off through the woman and the eventual seed to emerge from her Womb. So here, as I mentioned earlier, the central drama of the scriptural story begins to take shape. Human history is prophesied to be the history of a spiritual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, culminating in the head of the serpent being crushed. And from the garden onward, the rest of the scripture traces that ongoing enmity. Again, Cain and Abel. Abel, the seed of the woman. Cain, the seed of the serpent and the enmity. Almost for no good reason, Cain decides to murder his brother Abel. Yet God appoints another seed, uh, another descendant, Seth. And then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's genealogy is traced ten generations to Noah. Noah his name means rest, and the point is that Noah, his father says, would give us rest from the work of our hands, from the ground which the Lord our God has cursed. And Noah leads to a new world. And from Noah, there's another genealogy down all the way to Abraham, 
who God promises to take his seed and make it great, and through his seed to bring blessing to all the nations. And then we trace the story of that seed as it unfolds through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And then the seed winds up in Egypt, where Pharaoh, another serpent, is trying to destroy the seed, Israel. And on and on the story goes, all throughout the scriptures, till we arrive at our Lord and Savior. So the promise comes through the woman. And that makes Adam's naming of her in verse 20 all the more significant. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve, meaning life or living, is her name because she is now the mother of all living. Now it's meant in a physical sense, obviously. Here is the first mother from whose womb um, the human race is drawn. And it's also meant in another sense as a declaration of faith. From this same womb will come the promised seed who will defeat the serpent and unmake death. She is the mother of all living, the mother of the promise. And so Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're destined to an existence of toil and anxious labor, but not without hope. The future of the human race waits upon the coming seed, Jesus Christ the Lord. And it's his birth in this season that we look back upon, and his return that we look forward to. His serpent-crushing business is spread abroad between these two poles. In his first advent, the seed dealt a mortal blow to the serpent. And in his future advent, he comes again to finish The work. He will cast down the serpent once and for all and roll back the curse upon the land and bring about the resurrection from the dead. We look forward to that moment. But in the meantime, right? We're in this position of waiting. In the meantime, the human race is driven out to the east, away from the garden. Remember the word is isabon, toil and anxious labor. That hangs over and defines life in this world. The man and the woman must struggle to bring forth fruit under the conditions of death. And that fact is turned into an image in the rest of the scriptures. Our condition is summed up in that word, anxious toil. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. He's referring to the passage we just read about God cursing the ground. We know that the whole creation groans, he continues, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The entire created order is likened by the Apostle Paul to a barren womb. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall bring forth children. It labors under futility. That is, toil and struggle that bring forth nothing. There's a passage in Isaiah that talks about a woman bringing labor. We were like her, he says. Israel was trying to bring forth salvation, laboring and toiling, and we gave birth, he says, to wind, to nothing. That's the condition of the earth. And that condition in the garden is projected onto a cosmic scale. The entire created order, heaven and earth, groan and suffer 
It's the same word that we find there in our Genesis passage. And we share that same fate as well. Verse 23, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, awaiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. So we too groan under the conditions of death, of corruption and futility. We are destined to return to the dust from whence we came. Again, it, dust being an image of our condition, of weakness and dishonor. Yet though we groan because of this, it's not without hope. Stanzo is the Greek word. And it might be better translated here in verse 23. Instead of groaning, sighing. We sigh. We groan under death. And we sigh for the return of the seed and the coming resurrection. And the apostle says that we sigh or long for our adoption, the resurrection of our bodies, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. All humanity groans, in other words, but only those who have tasted the powers of the age to come can sigh within themselves. One cannot long for something that they've never enjoyed. And so if we pant and we mourn and we breathe discontented sighs in this world, it's because we've glimpsed the next. It's because we've been given a taste of what's to come by the first fruits of the Spirit. And because of His work in our hearts, a homesickness lies upon them. And so where we've become contented in this world, having forgotten that there is even something to sigh after, to long for, this season comes to us and it stirs up discontentment within our hearts. It points back to the garden and it reminds us that the work of the serpent still lies upon the world. It points us to the seed of the woman, to his once and future coming, and it teaches us that there is still something greater. It reminds us to hope. It reminds us that God is not done. So it's not a bad thing to sigh. Indeed, it's a sign that one is acquainted with their hope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a quote that I always return back to in this time, he says, The celebration at Advent is possible only for those troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. So God is not unkind in making us to sigh in this life. In fact, he turns those sighs, those longings for the coming kingdom, he turns those sighs into prayer. Look at verses 26 and 27. The Spirit also helps with our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So groaning and sighing is the work of the Spirit. He stirs up discontentment within our hearts and translates our inaudible sighing into prayers that are according to the perfect will of God. In other words, our groaning under the conditions of death and sin is not unfruitful. It's the very means, our cries, by which the purpose of God is accomplished in the world. Our cries of heart-sick yearning are the pains of childbirth, the throes of travail that God is using to deliver salvation into 
the world. Hence, the apostle concludes, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So whatever discontent lies upon your heart this morning, I think the calling of the season as we approach the celebration of the once and future coming of our Lord Jesus, I think the calling is not to silence that discontentment. It's an expression of hope. To hope for anything that you do not have, that you do not see, is also to long for it. It's also to sigh after it, because you do not yet have it. And that sighing teaches us perseverance, to wait eagerly upon the return of the seed of the woman. Because when he comes, the curse will become untrue. Our groaning and sighing in this life will be no more. Hope will become sight. The barrenness that lies upon this world, upon our hearts, the womb will be lifted. Death will be swallowed up forever. And finally, the serpent's head will be crushed. He'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so as we turn now to our celebration of Holy Communion, we're reminded that our true work in this world is to wait. Salvation, Advent reminds us, is um, beyond our strength to obtain. It comes from the outside, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, His return from heaven. It's a victory that is won apart from us and for us by the seed of the woman. And so we're, we're reminded then, in the bread and the cup, the blood and the body, that the seed of the woman is the eternal Son of the Father. God has become the fulfillment of His own promise and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, let's partake in thanksgiving and praise, looking back to the advent of the seed, the snake crusher, and let's also partake in longing and expectation, looking forward to His return, when His work is completed and all enemies are put under His feet. Let's pray. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. So I invite you up now to uh, receive the elements, um, to take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in communion in just one moment.